Hello, it's great to be with you, to be opening God's Word with you. My name is Greg, I'm one of the ministers at OEC, and it's my great privilege today uh, to be unpacking God's Word with you. Once you make sure you have a Bible, have it open, and uh, John chapter 13, we'll spend all our time in that passage. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the wonderful gift of your great Word, and we pray that you would help us to understand it. Father, we pray that we would sit at your feet, that we would hear you speak, that we would be struck by the wonder of your love, and that we would be changed and moved to love others and love you in response. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. When I was a university student in Sydney, I lived with three other blokes. Uh, I was the alone, sane economic student living with three crazy engineering students. Uh, one was my best mate at the time, a guy called David Hayes, a lovely Christian brother. The other two, I didn't really know all that well. They were friends of Dave's, not mine. I, I, and I thought I was starting to get to know these two guys, sharing meals with them, shopping with them, studying with them. And then the exams hit. Exams have a habit of, of bringing out different things in people, different aspects of their character that maybe you didn't realise existed before where people might do things that seem to come straight out of the blue. So we were getting fairly stressed, studying really hard. Well, most of us were. Every uni student procrastinates, and they turn it into a bit of an art. But Craig, one of my flatmates, one of my new flatmates, was an artiste at the art of procrastination. And that was something I was about to learn in this exam period. I came home from night. I don't. I can't remember what I came home from. Might have been work or studying hard at university. Probably not. Or maybe from church. And I came home from campus, and Craig was sitting in the lounge room cutting the heads of matchsticks, cutting the heads off them. Like really, I said, Craig. What are you doing? I've seen some people procrastinate, but this really takes the cake. And he just told me, just wait and see. He didn't let me know what he was doing. What he was actually doing was making a homemade firework. He got a stack of matchboxes, cut the heads off the matches, and put this pile of match heads into a single matchbox lined inside with the flint of the other matchboxes. And then he closed the matchbox up and he sealed it with duct tape around and around and around the matchbox until it was completely sealed. And then we all went outside and he threw the matchbox hard at the cement path. This duct tape wrapped box bounced off the cement. Then as the pressure of the lit match heads built up inside the box, at the top of the arc, the matchbox exploded in a shower of phosphorus. Wow, we said, let's do that again. And the whole household joined in the wonderful art of university procrastination. From that point on, I began to realise that I should never be surprised at anything that Craig did, this flatmate of mine from stripping down a motorbike engine in the lounge room of our flat to starting that same motorbike in the lounge room with the exhaust off to leaving uncooked pumpkin soup sitting on the stovetop for easy access until finally it went off. If there was one thing that I came to expect from Craig, it was the unexpected. Anything could happen. 
In the passage that we look at today, Jesus does the totally unexpected. No one would have expected what Jesus did in John 13, washing the disciples' feet. Uh, for many of us, it's such a familiar act, such a familiar event, I think it's lost the shock factor. It was an act out of the blue that surprised, that shocked, that even offended those who watched it happen. And it's an act that we see in the wonder of what Jesus came to do and the radical nature of what it means to be a follower of this man, Jesus. But before we look into the shocking nature of what Jesus did in washing the disciples' feet, let's again sit down with the disciples at the feet of Jesus. Beginning our evening in the presence of greatness by looking at chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, having loved his own that were in the world. He now showed them the full extent of his love. What does John mean by saying that he showed them the full extent of his love? Is he just speaking about what he's about to do? Is it just a reference to this moment when he's going to wash their feet? I don't think so. I think he's referring to much more than that. This verse acts as a heading to the rest of this Gospel of John. This verse lets us know what Jesus will be doing for the next nine chapters. He has loved the disciples. He's taught them patiently. He's shown them the reality of who he is, revealed to them the very nature of God as he's revealed himself to them. But now he will show them the full extent of his love. What they have seen already has been profound. But what he's about to do will reveal the love of Jesus and the love of the Father, like nothing he's done yet. The foot washing. And then the words that he speaks to prepare them for his leaving. And then his crucifixion that follows, the pinnacle of his love, the pinnacle of his glory. But it's not the end of his love either, the crucifixion. No, the resurrection of Jesus. And then his words of comfort and rebuke and revelation to the disciples after he's raised from the dead. And then his ascension. And his giving of the Spirit, they're all acts of the loving Lord Jesus as he leaves them to be with his Father. And so as we begin to sit at the feet of Jesus, what we're going to see is him express the full extent of his love. His love for his disciples to the very end. And the first act of love we see in this section is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. In this act, Jesus teaches three separate lessons that will work through one by one. Lesson one, our need to be washed by Jesus. Lesson two, the ongoing washing of Jesus. Lesson three, the example of Jesus washing one another's feet. So let's go to lesson one, the need to be washed by Jesus. Have a look at verse four. John tells us that Jesus gets up from the meal that they were sharing together, takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, then he puts water in a basin and begins to wash their feet one by one and then drying them with a towel wrapped around his waist. In these verses, John is a master storyteller. Can you see what he's doing? 
in these two verses. He is showing us every single movement of Jesus, every individual step as Jesus begins this profound act. He takes us into this moment and brings us into the room and we see the drama unfold before us, step by step, moment by moment. The whole narrative slows down. He's telling us to sit up, look, take notice, something big is about to unfold and he wants us to watch it. And what happens is something that on the surface appears pretty ordinary. Jesus just washes the disciples' feet. But this simple act of love is radical. It's ridiculous even. It turns the very idea of love and leadership upside down. Think about what Jesus is doing here. You know, they didn't have nice closed-in shoes in Jesus' day and their roads were dirty, dusty, muck-filled roads. The feet of the disciples must have made the toe-jammed feet of a teenage boy look pristine. The washing of feet was a task that was reserved for the lowliest of slaves. It could have been a punishment for slaves who needed to be taught a lesson. This task was below the station of ordinary people. But Jesus is no ordinary person. John has made clear Jesus is God in the flesh. John told us in chapter 1 that Jesus is the eternal word of God made man. When we see Jesus, John says, we have seen the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the great I am. Jesus, the one whose hands flung stars into space. With the same hands, he cleaned off the muck, the filth, the dirt of the world off the disciples' feet. And to get how ridiculous this is, could you imagine the queen getting down on her knees to clean and wipe the feet of her servant that just before mucked out the royal stables in his sandals? No way. I mean, who do you think cleans the royal toilets in Buckingham Palace? I can tell you now, it's not the queen. And in Jesus' day, it certainly wouldn't have been the Roman emperors of his day as well. There's no way they would do anything like that. But the God of the universe humbles himself, becomes a man, enters into our world of filth and sin and disappointment, of suffering and selfishness and curse and hatred and loneliness and rejection and sickness and darkness and death and sorrow. He enters into our world, humbles himself to the very point of becoming like a slave, serving the needs of Broken sinners who will the next day abandon him. And this ridiculous act by Jesus is not lost on Peter. Have a look at verse 6. He says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realise what I'm doing now. But later you'll understand. Peter has none of that. He says, no, you shall never wash my feet. Peter's offended by what Jesus wants to do. Jesus, his king, how could he do such a debased and humble act? And Peter will have no part in this act of reversal that Jesus wants to do. And I think as Peter says these words, the other disciples are thinking, man, I wish I had the guts that Peter had to say that, because I was thinking the same thing. But in Jesus' reply to what Peter said, 
we see the first lesson in this act of Jesus, the need we all have to be washed by him. Verse 8, Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part in me, with me. Now, Jesus is not saying in that verse that we need to be in that room and be physically washed by Jesus, having washed physically our feet to be a part of his kingdom, to be on his side, to be brought into relationship with the living God. No, he's not saying that. What this verse makes clear is that this act of loving the disciples by washing their feet is actually an enacted parable. It's a picture of what Jesus is about to do the next day in dying in their place. Just as Jesus humbles himself, takes on the nature of a lowly slave to meet the needs of his disciples, so the very next day, he's once again going to take off his garments, or rather, they'll be taken off him. And he will endure shameful, shocking treatment, do a shameful, shocking event, in order to clean, in order to wash, in order to meet the needs of his disciples in their sin. His death, his coming crucifixion, is the great event that washes away the filth of this world, the sin that we commit, the disgusting nature of the way that we've treated the God of the universe with indifference and thankless arrogance. It's through the death of Jesus that we are cleaned up, that we are made fit to enter into the presence of the living God. It was a humbling thing for the disciples to let Jesus wash their feet. It's a humbling thing for all of us to recognise that there's nothing we can do to make things right with God. To realise that our good deeds, whatever they might be, our good intentions, our religious rituals, our acts of devotion to realise that they don't cut it with God. Unless we let Jesus wash us, we have nothing to do with him. We have nothing to do with God. So let me ask you this question. Have you let Jesus wash you clean? Have you realised that your good works, your good intentions, your spiritual devotion, anything you do, does not, cannot, gets you right with God. It doesn't make up for the indifference and the ignorance that you've shown to the God who made you. Have you realised that the only way you can get right with God is if you let the King of the Universe serve you as a slave and shamefully, terribly let him die in your place? If you haven't realised that, if you haven't accepted that, have a look again at this event, this foot washing, and the fulfilment of the foot washing in the next day in the death of Jesus, and see what it means, see what it says about becoming a child of the living God. Have a look again at the way that God has come into your world, experienced its brokenness, died a shockingly terrible and shameful death in your place so you could be with him and come to him and find life in the Son. Peter, in response to these words, does a complete 180-degree flip. Just before it, he'd emphatically stated his unwavering and unchanging position. You shall never wash my feet, he says. But after Jesus says that, well, he must. Peter says, well, okay, let's go the whole hog. Let's get the bath and let's pour it out. I love Peter. I love his passion. I love how he opens his mouth and we see his foot fall out again and again. 
Peter always jumps in with both feet, doesn't he? Jesus uses this reply by Peter to teach a second lesson. The need for ongoing washing by Jesus. Verse 10. Peter, uh, Jesus answered, The person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Clearly, what Jesus says here in verse 10 is a different point to the one that Jesus made in verse 8, where he said, Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. In verse 10, he says that they're already washed, they're already clean, they're already a part of him. So they are with him, they are children of the living God, but they still need to come to have their feet washed again and again. There is really only one thing this could mean. Those who are disciples of Jesus need to continue to return to Jesus to have their feet washed. Those who are disciples of Jesus need to continue to come to him in ongoing repentance for their sin while they live in this broken, sin-stained world. In this world, we get sullied and dirtied and stained by our own sin. But let's be clear from verse 10. It's not as if every time we sin, we fall out of relationship with God like we've never been forgiven in the first place. No, Jesus says we are clean if we've been forgiven, cleansed, bathed by him, ultimately through his death on the cross. But this relationship we have with him as forgiven sinners, needs to be lived out in a life of ongoing repentance, in confidence of sins already forgiven, already covered. And so the way we begin the Christian life, in repentance turning to Jesus to find forgiveness in him, cleansing in him, that's the way we continue the Christian life, in ongoing trust and repentance, coming to him in repentance and faith again and again and again, Confident, yes, of sins forgiven, but coming to repent and say sorry. So let me ask you this. Do you regularly come to God? Do you regularly come to Jesus with the filth of your own sin? To once again repent and say sorry for the way that you've treated him, ignored him, rebelled against him, rejected his love and authority and his great command? Do you keep short accounts with your God? Or do you go days, weeks, months without ever saying sorry? Do you only apologise to God for the way that you treated him when it becomes blatantly clear to you, when something's drastically exposed to you and you just feel terrible and you cry out to God, God, I'm so sorry. We should do that when our sin becomes so clear to us. But we should also regularly examine our life, our heart, our motives, and bring those broken, rebellious thoughts and words and deeds before him in humble prayer, letting him once again clean our feet. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? And we need to live it out. Think of a close relationship you might have with someone. It might be your friends, your best friend, your parents, your spouse. When you offend that person, do you leave it for days? Do you leave it for months, for weeks? Do you ignore the way that you hurt them? If you do, then please change that behaviour because it's just not right. It will isolate you from that person that you're supposed to be close to. And again and again, if you do it again and again, it'll get to the point where you wonder why they don't trust you anymore. That's no way to treat others when Jesus has been so generous and loving and forgiving to us. 
That's no way to treat those who are close to us. And so it's no way to treat the God who saved us and entered into our world and the mark of our sin and died in our place. Have we lost the art of self-examination? Take some time today or tomorrow to consider where you've fallen, to examine yourself, to bring what you've done wrong to God, confident in sins forgiven, and repent and say sorry. And let that pattern, let that become a pattern that changes your life and turns your life upside down. But once Jesus finishes washing the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel, verse 12, he again put on his outer garment and applies yet another, a third lesson from the foot washing, the example of Jesus washing one another's feet. Have a look at verse 12. Do you understand what I've done for you, says Jesus? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. What he doesn't say here is that he's not just teacher and Lord, he is he's king of heaven and earth, he's creator and judge, but still he makes his point clear and he goes on. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Jesus makes the lesson clear, doesn't he? Not only is his death the atonement for sin, the cleansing of our lives from the filth of our sin, his death, this foot washing, is an example of love and leadership that we need to follow. If we want to be followers of Jesus, then we need to lead like he leads. And we need to love like he loves. This act of foot washing and the crucifixion that it's a picture of defines for us, for us what true leadership and love really is. True leadership is not about getting what you want from others, the, the power to do what you want and the power to do what you like. True leadership is about sacrifice and service for the good of those you lead. This was, and still is, a radical view of leadership. Now, my son Ben is quite an accomplished guitarist. Like any electrical guitarist, he collects guitars and amps and pedals. What I found hilarious one day was when he brought home an amp uh, that had a volume knob that went up to 12. Not 10, no, 10's for wusses goes up to 12. Well, this foot-washing demonstration by Jesus takes this point that leadership is about service and amps it up to 12. Leadership is about sacrificial service. And if that means you need to do things that the world thinks is shameful, below you, in order to seek the good of those that you lead, then that's what you need to do. That applies in the workplace, at church, at home. As Jesus says in verse 16, if it's good enough for him, the master, the teacher, the Lord, the king, then it must be good enough for us. Nothing is below us if it means seeking the good of those that we lead. But as I said, this statement is not just about leadership, it's about love. Verse 1, this event is about Jesus showing the full extent of his love, as is the rest of the gospel. And this is the way that he wants us to love one another. So even if you're not in a leadership position, this act, this word of Jesus, says something radically ridiculous to all of us. We have to love others, to speak and act and seek their good, even if that means doing things that we might think is below us. Love, at the heart, is about sacrificial action and words for the good of another person. That's what defined Jesus' love for me 
and for you. And the question is, does it characterize our love for others? Are we willing to sacrifice time and status and significance and influence and reputation to love one another? Are we willing to sacrifice pride and say sorry when we do stuff wrong? Or to forgive when others wrong us? Is our love marked by self-sacrifice? Or like the world in which we live, is it marked by self-interest? Am I only in it because it makes me feel good? If Jesus loved us like that, he wouldn't have died for us. Jesus washing the feet of the disciples was a radically ridiculous act of love. An act that was profoundly overshadowed in the fulfilment of that picture as he hung on the cross for us. As we sit at the feet of Jesus, will we seek to be like him, to lead like him, to love like him, to seek to treat others like he has treated us with radically sacrificial love and leadership. He cleansed us and he continues to clean us as we come to him in ongoing repentance and faith. And to show we are his, we need to seek to love like he loved and seek to lead like he led us, radically, sacrificially. Let's pray that we would do exactly that. Father God, thank you for sending your Son. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrificial love, that you laid down your life, that you went through the shame of washing the disciples' feet and then the shame of the cross so that we might be your children. Father, forgive us. Help us to examine ourselves regularly. Forgive us that we haven't kept short accounts with you. Help us to change that. Sorry for the way that we've treated you with sometimes indifference and ignorance. Help us not to be like that again. Help us to love you as you have loved us. Help us to love one another and lead others as you have loved and led us with sacrificial love, where nothing is below us for the sake of the good of another. And we pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.